Morning. You have no idea how good you sound this morning. I mean, it is wonderful sitting up front and hearing the voices together in praise to God. Let's pray together. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that all of it has been breathed out by you. Every part of it, every type of literature in it. And as we take up this narrative passage this morning in Nehemiah, uh, one that I think could easily be overlooked, I pray that you would speak to us through it. I pray that uh, you would help us to see how it can apply to our lives and then eagerly to put it to work as we go out and serve you in this coming week. So speak to us, Father. We are listening, waiting to hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, an unbelieving friend of mine was the treasurer of the Marathon County Fair Board back when I was pastoring in Wausau. And he asked me if I might be able to provide a crew of people who could clean up uh, around and under the grandstands at the Marathon County Fair that following year. Now, I see a grimace, and, and, and rightly so. The, the cleaning up around and under the grandstands after there's been a concert there the night before, and doing that for a whole week is really gross. I mean, it really is. I mean, there's, there's discarded cheese curds and elephant ears and cigarette butts and other types of random trash. Uh, and, and we come at that with, with leaf blowers and rakes and bags and gloves. Uh, <laughs> you know, and so I said, sure, we'll do that. We'll find some people from the church who can do that. Now, you may be wondering, why in the world would I agree to that? It is dirty, messy work. Why would I volunteer to put together a team from the church to do that? Was it because it would be a great fundraiser? Not so much. Was it because it would be a great team builder for the people working on that together? Not so much, you know, because you're just working in your own little area. I'll tell you why I was willing to do that. I wanted to continue to engage this unbelieving friend of mine, and I also wanted to teach my people the heart of servanthood, that you can pick up garbage for the glory of God. And I wanted my unbelieving friend to see that. We were created for the glory of God. Our purpose in life is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. All that we do is to be for the glory of God. So there, there must be some way we can glorify God as we pick up cheese curds and random garbage at the fair. And if we can do those things for the glory of God, then we can do everything for the glory of God. As we look at Nehemiah chapter 3, uh, we're going to find 
uh, a section of scripture here that, that could pretty well be overlooked, I think. But what we find in it are people who are working to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And a question occurs to me, and, and it's this, why would they do that? What would be motivating them to rebuild these walls? Would it be personal interest? Would it be uh, national security? Would it be a sense of duty? I'm sure different people had different reasons. And as we look at the text, I think we're going to see some of those reasons coming to the surface. But we need to be careful not to see this passage as nothing more than a little lesson in history. These passages of Scripture have been preserved for us. There's some reason for that. There's some reason this is a part of the Bible that's been given to us. And I think Paul gives us a clue about that in Romans chapter 15. In verse 4, he says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. This is for us. This strange passage of Scripture is for us. And the reason why, and the many reasons why, those people were involved in rebuilding the wall, and the reasons some of them weren't involved at all, could have been written today. So let's start with this question. Why are you involved in ministry? Why are you involved in ministry? What is it that motivates you? Or maybe why aren't you involved in ministry? What reasons are there for your sitting this one out? I'd like for us today to look at some reasons people use today for why they're not involved in God's work, some typical reasons people do get involved in God's work, and I'd like for us to end up at the best reason we can get involved in God's work. This was reality 2,500 years ago when Nehemiah wrote his book, and it's reality today. So first, some reasons not to get involved in God's work. And if you're following along in your program or if you see on the screen there, um, I think they're flimsy, okay? Flimsy reasons not to get involved in God's work. And I'm going to give you four of them. The first is this. It's not my gift. Not my gift. I'll sit this one out. It's not my gift. What you're asking for is not my gift. You need experienced stonecutters to rebuild that wall of Jerusalem, and I'm a priest, I'm a goldsmith, I'm a maker of perfume. When you need my talents, just ask, I'll be there, but right now you don't need me. Now that was the answer that could have been provided by a number of people, namely priests, verse 1, a goldsmith, verse 8, a maker of perfume, also verse 8. Any of those people said, you need experienced stonecutters. You don't need what I have to offer, so I'm going to sit this one out. But instead, we see them all at work building that wall. It wasn't their gift, but they saw the need, and they responded to the need. When Paul told Timothy to do the work of an evangelist, was it because Timothy had the gift of evangelism? It wasn't. You just kind of look at the guy and you realize he didn't have that gift. 
Paul told Timothy to do the work of an evangelist because there were lost people who needed to hear the gospel, and Timothy was in a position to share it. So do the work, whether you have the gift or not. Really doesn't matter if evangelism isn't your gift. And by the way, you don't need to tell a new believer to do the work of an evangelism, do the work of an evangelist, right? They're just going to do it. It's, it's exciting. This is fresh and new to them, and they want to share what they've experienced with somebody else. It's us longtime believers that need to be reminded to do the work of the evangelist. But there are some bottom line things that should just characterize all of us, whether it's our gift or not. And where there's a need in the body of Christ, we need to respond to that need regardless of our gifting. In fact, this passage in Nehemiah 3 is really the inverse of the passage in 1 Corinthians 12 that was read a few moments ago. We look at 1 Corinthians 12 or Romans 12 or Ephesians 4 and we see these lists of spiritual gifts and we see the body there described as the interworking of interdependent parts for the greater good as each part does its work. But here we see people laying aside their unique giftedness, laying aside their specialty functions for a time to respond to a need and to do what the larger group needs done. Sometimes gifts don't matter. Sometimes we need to lay aside our gift and do the task at hand, whatever it is, for the glory of God. So you can change diapers for the glory of God. You can clean bathrooms for the glory of God. You can rake leaves for the glory of God. I think all of those things happened here yesterday at some time or another. So flimsy reason number one, it's not my gift. Flimsy reason number two is it's beneath my dignity. The nobles of Tekoa seem to think that way. If you look at verse 5, next to them, the Tekoites, or the people of Tekoa, repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. How's that for a line? They wouldn't stoop to serve their Lord. How does Nehemiah handle that? when the nobles of Tekoa wouldn't stoop to serve their Lord. He goes, okay, I'll write about you in this book I'm putting together. And he holds them up as a negative example while the people of Tekoa actually repair two sections, verse 5 and verse 27. So think about it. For 2,500 years now, people have been reading about these nobles of Tekoa. And what people have been reading about them has not been very good. They've been negative role models. It was beneath their dignity to help. They're mentioned in Scripture for what they were unwilling to do. And that's not how you want to be mentioned in Scripture. Does that ever happen in the church? People thinking something is beneath their dignity to do. I remember times when I was um, a senior pastor and uh, we were in the first phase of our building and uh, the, the room that we were worshiping in was, was rather small. 
until we built the second phase. And so we got up to three worship services. So I'd get there at 6 or 6.30 in the morning to prepare, and then I would preach three times and then hang out with people and generally be the last person to leave the building, and I would just drag my weary body out to my car, and in the bushes I'd see a coffee cup. You know, it it struck me that someone would be careless enough to toss a coffee cup there, figuring that someone else would pick it up. And it also struck me that maybe a couple hundred people walked by that coffee cup rather than picking it up themselves, figuring that somebody else would do that. But what really struck me was this question, what reflection is this on the glory of God? That somebody who had just been in to worship him would be that careless, and that a couple hundred others would walk by it and leave it there. What reflection is that on the glory of the God that we worship? What would it look like to someone who drove up during the week to deliver a package? It's more than a matter of having a clean building. It's a reflection on the glory of God. And if we're concerned for the glory of God, then nothing that would glorify him is beneath our dignity. If it wasn't beneath Jesus' dignity to endure the cross for us, we can lower ourselves from whatever dignity we may think is due us to do something that will help the name of God be held high. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 7 says, Have this mind among yourselves, or another version says, Have this mind in you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant being born in the likeness of man. He humbled himself to do what was beneath his dignity for us. We can do that for him. Third flimsy excuse, I'm not capable. Have you heard that one? I could never do that. I'm not good enough. I'm not talented enough to do that. Or I'm not old enough. Kids, pay attention to that one. You are. Uh, Or I'm not big enough. And ministries go without people serving Not because there aren't enough talented people, but because there are enough talented people, they just don't think they are. Stuart Briscoe once said, anything worth doing is worth doing badly. His his thought there was, if it means someone's not going to do it, then just get up and, and do whatever you can with it. And somebody else might look at that and go, well, I could do that better than him. And then you invite them to do so. And uh, the quality rises. Anything worth doing is worth doing badly. It always amazes me when someone who's really good at their ministry moves away. We wonder how we'll ever survive. Uh, We think we'll never have a ministry that good again. And I've seen that response when musicians move away or when teachers have moved away or when team leaders have moved away or project chairmen have moved away. But you know what happens each time? God raises up somebody to fill the void. And most of the time, it's someone who has been there all the while thinking they weren't good enough or talented enough or old enough or big enough to do it. 
What do you say when someone says, I'm not capable? Well, I think the answer is provided in verse 12 by a guy named Shalom, along with his daughters. Look at verse 12. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Halohesh, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. He and his daughters. Now, repairing a wall made of stone is tough work. We're not talking about little field stones that, that you gather. We're talking about big blocks of cut stone here. I don't know what Shalom's daughters look like. You know, they, they might have just been muscle-bound. I don't know what Shalom's daughters did to help, but they did something. Maybe they hefted stone, I don't know. Maybe they figured out how to make a lever or a pulley while the men were breaking their backs. Maybe they provided food, who knows. But what they didn't do was say, oh, we're girls, we could never do that. So it's generally not a matter of capability, but of willingness. Jeremiah tried to give an excuse when God called him. Do you remember that in the opening chapter of Jeremiah? Lord, I'm, I'm too young. I'm too, come back later, Lord. And God's reply in verse 7, the Lord said to me, Do not say I am only a youth, for to all to whom I send you, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Paul told Timothy not to let his youthfulness get in the way of his ministry. Don't let anything stand in the way of what God has called you to do. Don't put it off. Don't underestimate your abilities. God has equipped you uniquely, and if he has called you to do something, he will help you to do it so you can step forward boldly. Now, maybe there are some things you can't do. Uh, maybe uh, the task requires some gift that you don't have. But we're never told in Scripture we need to find out what our gifts are. We're only called to serve. Uh, you can take spiritual gift inventories, but the best way to find out what your spiritual gifts are is to try them out in areas that you think God might be calling you to serve in. You can look for confirmation of what you think your gifts are by asking some trusted, mature Christians, but really the best way is through serving. And some things can be done, as I mentioned earlier, regardless of gifting. Sometimes the giftedness doesn't really matter. And maybe there are some limits to what you can do. Women don't serve as elders here because we believe God's word teaches that's not appropriate. But don't let that give you a chip on your shoulder to where you say, well, if I can't be an elder, I'm not going to do anything. That's just ungodly talk. There's plenty you can do. So find out what you're capable of. You can do it through inventories, through discussions with mature believers, or do it through serving and trying those gifts out. But do it all for the glory of God. One last flimsy excuse, it's not my concern. It's not my concern. There were people who lived in the outlying areas around Jerusalem who watched the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem and did absolutely nothing to help. After all, it wasn't their city, and who would fault them? The answer is actually provided by the people of Jericho in verse 2, 
who joined in the work even though they lived about 14 miles away. Imagine. The answer is also provided uh, from the people of Tekoa in verse 5, because they came to work even though they lived 10 or 12 miles away. And the answer is also provided by the people of Gibeon, in verse 7, who traveled five or six miles to join in the work. And the people of Mizpah, in verse 7, who also traveled seven or eight miles to come and join in the work of rebuilding Jerusalem. People from these outlying areas came in and took sections of the wall to work on. Why? Because the glory of God was at stake. His city, his city lay in ruin. That is what broke Nehemiah's heart and led him to prayer in chapter 1. The city that once reflected the glory of God was lying in ruins. It's what motivated Nehemiah in chapter 2 to face the king, to leave the comforts of the palace, to go to a broken down city filled with demoralized people in the midst of strong opposition and lead the work. The city the psalmist called the joy of the whole earth was lying in ruins. And God's name was at stake. So people came from miles away and lay aside what they had to do at home so they could join in the work. Flimsy reason number four, it's not my concern. It's easy for us to fall into that one ourselves as well. When we think of people who haven't heard of the Savior, we pass them every day. William Carey, father of modern missions, was a young man in the late 1700s when he became convinced that the Great Commission applied to him and applied to people around him. That wasn't the prevailing view at the time. Do you know that? The prevailing view was Jesus gave the Great Commission to the 12. That's it. Doesn't apply to us. And so William Carey, when he became convinced that it does apply to us, stood up at a church meeting and made an appeal to reach lost people in India with the gospel. And someone told him, sit down, young man. If God wants to reach the heathen, he will do it without consulting you or me. Not my concern. Where would you be if someone hadn't made you his or her concern? You can thank God someone did. We are privileged to be used of him for his glory. So for flimsy reasons not to get involved in God's work. One, it's not my gift. Two, it's beneath my dignity. Three, it's I'm not capable. And four, it's not my concern. Let me just share a couple of typical reasons people do get involved in God's work. First, it's my house. I'll fix that part. It's my house. Look at a few verses with me. Verse 10. Next to them, Jediah, son of Harumaf, repaired opposite his house. Verse 23, after them, Benjamin and Hashub repaired opposite their house. After them, Azariah, son of Masaiah, son of Ananiah, repaired beside his own house. Verse 28, above the horse gate, the priests repaired, each one 
opposite his own house. Verse 29, after them Zadok, son of Immer, repaired opposite his own house. Verse 30, after him Meshulam, son of Berechiah, repaired opposite his chamber. Have you discerned a theme as we've gone through those verses? It's my house, I'll fix that part. I have heard those voices a lot in 40 years of ministry. You wanna know what they sound like today? I like this church, it, it fits my needs. It meets my needs. I've shopped around to a lot of churches. This one really meets my needs. Or I come to worship because it makes me feel good. I attend regularly because it's good for my business to see people, have people see I'm involved in a church. I sing because I like to perform. And those things are okay as far as they go. The trouble is they just don't go very far. Why does that sort of reasoning for getting involved fall short? It falls short because it doesn't go beyond our own interests. Philippians chapter 2, verse 4, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And the verse that precedes it, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. What happens in a church when self-interest pervades? The people won't grow to see a bigger purpose. They won't grow to see a purpose beyond themselves. As long as they are looking for something that suits them or makes them feel good or meets their needs, they'll be there. But ask them to serve in an area where they don't directly benefit and they won't show up. They won't serve in nursery. They say, my kids are grown, I'm done with all of that. Or the inverse, I'm with them all week. Somebody else can take a turn. Uh, they won't come to prayer meetings. They say, I've got important things to do at home. Translation, the packers are on. And, and when the situation calls for sacrifice, they're not there. What's the solution? The solution is raising our sights above our self-interest to the glory of God. More on that in just a moment. Let's look at the typical reason number two. And that is, the city needs to be rebuilt. Somebody's got to do it. There's a job to be done. Duty calls. There are those who will respond to the call of duty, and they're good folks, and they're there when they're needed, and you can count on them. But I have seen good folks like that respond time after time after time and get worn down in the process, and somewhere along the way, they lose their joy. See, there's more at stake than duty, and if we can't see beyond the duty, then we won't see the glory of God. Two men were working on the same building. One, someone walked by and asked one of them, what are you doing? And he said, I'm laying brick. He asked the second guy, what are you doing? And he said, I'm building a place of worship for the glory of God. Which one would keep his motivation long-term? There are a lot of things in the church that just need to get done, a lot of them don't look very spiritual. Leaders in the church function a lot like leaders in other places. Menial tasks need to get done in a church like they do anywhere else. But the key to effectiveness is seeing beyond the duty to the glory of God and doing the task at hand for his glory. And that leads us to the best reason to get involved in God's work, and that's just this, I want 
to glorify God. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Colossians 3, 23 and 24. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. This is what motivates people to overcome pride, to lay aside their dignity, to take up unfamiliar work, work they feel maybe they're not talented enough to do, and to do more than their share to fix the wall of a city they don't even live in. And it's what motivates them to do it with gusto. Kids, one of the words I gave you this week is gusto. You can mark a little mark next to it. I've used it. Gusto. Verse 20 tells us of a man named Baruch. I love that guy, Baruch. His name means blessing. And Baruch repaired a section of the wall in verse 20, but look at the footnote in your Bible. Another manuscript says he repaired it vigorously. He vigorously repaired this section of the wall. He uh, did it the way Colossians 3 tells us to do it. Whatever you do, work heartily, vigorously, with gusto. Kids, you can mark it again. As for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Christ. It's what we need. There is nothing we can't do for the glory of God but sin. Let me just say it again. There is nothing we can't do for the glory of God but sin. And when he has called us to do something and it's glorifying to him, we can do it wholeheartedly, vigorously, with gusto. So why be involved in the life of the church? Why serve as an elder or as a ministry team coordinator? Why volunteer on a ministry team? Why show up for a work day? Why reach out to your neighbor? There are a lot of possible reasons. I want to encourage you to choose the best one. Whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. You'll find some questions for further thought in your program. Notice that question number eight is an extra credit question. Never had one of those before. So take a look at question eight and join me in prayer. Father, thank you for the opportunity to bring glory to your name, to allow others around us, unsaved people, to see us, doing things for your glory, things that, that draw attention to you and to your greatness and your goodness. Father, I, I thank you that there is nothing that we can't do to your glory but sin. And so help us to do everything for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.